All right, well, we're in 1 Samuel 23, but I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you here in just a minute. But in 1 Samuel 23, we, I want to set up what our situation is right now. And so last week we looked at, at Samuel fleeing after Jonathan told him to go, and Samuel goes and, and he goes to Abiathar, and Abiathar gives him the bread, and, and then the, the Doeg, the Edomite, escapes and goes and tells Saul, hey, Abiathar is sheltering David and didn't tell you, even though Abiathar was innocent because David was exercising some deception there. And then David flees to Gath and pretends to be insane in Gath for fear the Philistines might put him to death. And so they take him in for a while until the king says, hey, I've got enough lunatics here. Get rid of this guy. And so then David leaves from there as well. And, and so now we come and we pick it up, and he's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from Saul, and he, he doesn't know where to go or what to do. But there's a city that David learns of while he's residing in an area in a place called the Cave of Adullam. And there's a city called Keilah that he learns about. And David's in this weird tension where he's got Saul pursuing him as the king of Israel. And yet at the same time, David, being zealous for the Lord, is still pursuing the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. And so while he's camped out at the Cave of Adullam, he finds out that this city, Keilah, is in danger of being attacked and wiped out by the Philistines. So David calls Abiathar the priest, who, remember, had brought the ephod with him to David. And he asked Abiathar to seek the Lord's guidance, to seek the Lord's will. Is, is it good for him to go and rescue the inhabitants of Keilah? And Abiathar says, yes, this is good. So David goes and he saves the day for Keilah and all of its inhabitants. And you would think, well, great, we're going to have National David Day in Keilah. But the problem is Saul catches wind that David's there. And David learns that Saul knows, and David again goes to Abiathar and says, Abiathar, inquire of the Lord for me and find out, are these guys going to turn me over? And we think to ourselves, well, that's absurd, that's preposterous. David saved their lives, how could they ever betray him? But sure enough, God confirms, yes, they're going to turn you over. And so David takes off from there and he runs again. And this time he runs to an area called the Wilderness of Ziph. The Wilderness of Ziph, and it's almost like we're getting into Star Wars lands now with some of these names. But just to give you a, a little bit of a, a picture of where David was while he's on the run in the wilderness of Ziph, that's it. So this isn't like a, a, a lush area. This isn't an area that's, that's going to be hospitable to somebody who's on the run for his life. And so David finds himself here fleeing from Saul. And we think, okay, well, finally, David's got, he's got away. He's in the middle of nowhere which, with a bunch of you know, small clans out here, the Ziphites. He's good. But the problem is the Ziphites, they find out that David's residing in their land and, and they dispatch messengers to Saul to say, hey Saul, guess who we've got? And you can see why, right? I mean, these guys are, are about as low on the totem pole as you can get and they think if we do a favor for the king of Israel, what's he going to do for us? Maybe he'll honor us. Maybe he'll bestow some reward or favor on us. And so Saul then comes after David in Ziph. And so here's a, a, an overall picture. I know it's kind of hard to see up here. But this is where David's been so far, up at the very top there. Okay, that's, that's Gibeah. That's kind of headquarters for Saul and Jonathan. David starts there, and he ends up number one on the map there, circled there up at the top right. That's, that's Nob, okay? That's where he goes to the priests, and he takes shelter there first. But after leaving Nob, he comes all the way across to number two out there, which is Gath and Philistia. And that's where he pretends to be insane with the Philistine king. And then he leaves there. And number three is the cave of Adullam. That's where we pick up in 1 Samuel 23 tonight. And that's where he learns about this town, Keilah, which is number four there. 
and the fact that Keilah needs to be rescued. So David and his men go to Keilah there, and they rescue Keilah from the Philistines. And then after that, when the, he learns that they're going to betray him, he takes off to the wilderness of Ziph, which is that number five circled down there. Well, just to the side of the wilderness, wilderness of Ziph there is Horesh. And in our text, while David is hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph on the run from Saul, who comes to David to encourage him but Jonathan? And Jonathan comes to him right there at that circled part, the, the very bottom of the map called Horesh. And so that's kind of a, a big picture of what's going on, where all these moving pieces are. The body of water to your right here is the Dead Sea. The body of water on the left that you can just see a tiny little sliver of over there is the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's where, that's where all this is happening. Jerusalem is up top there near Gibeah, but remember at this time, Jerusalem isn't a major city. The Jebusites live there. David took the head of Goliath there. David will eventually conquer Jerusalem, but right now it's, it's not a major player on the scene. So that's what's going on. David's on the run. He's running for his life. Saul's chasing after him everywhere he can possibly find him. In fact, it gets so bad that the text says at one point that David and Saul are on the same mountain, just on opposite sides of the mountain. And the only thing that saves David from certain discovery is God uses the Philistines attacking to, to divert Saul's attention so that Saul abandons the mountain and abandons his pursuit of David for the time being. And he leaves, giving David a little bit of a respite. That's a bad day. I mean, David has had a, a bad string of events taking place. From finding out, man, the king hates me, to finding out from his, his best friend Jonathan, yeah, the king's going to try to kill you. He runs, he lies, he deceives. He's, his life is threatened, not just by Saul, but by the Philistines. He goes and he finally thinks, man, I'm going to do something good for once. And he saves Keilah. And yet that victory is short-lived because they're going to turn him over and they're going to betray him to, the, to, uh, to Saul. So he leaves there and he ends up in the wilderness of Ziph, that lovely lush area that I just showed you guys up there. And if that's not enough, the Ziphites turn and they go, oh yeah, there's King or David. Let's, let's go betray him to King Saul and see what Saul will give us. So he's continually running for his life. Do you, do you ever wish that you could be a fly on the wall in the caves where David was hiding out in? just wondering, listening to some of the conversations that he was having with people. Even better would be to, to get a glimpse inside David's thought life at this time. David, what was running through your mind? I mean, I, I wonder, just in my flesh, if David ever thought, man, I, I really miss being a shepherd. I really miss when nobody knew me. I was fine being the run of the litter. Why is all this happening to me? I, I, you know, I, I would have thought being anointed the next king of Israel would have been a ticket to, to Easy Street? That's what I would have been thinking. But we can't actually know what David was thinking. And the reason we can know what David was thinking is there's another book in the Old Testament that contains a lot of what David wrote that reveals exactly what David was thinking, what he was wrestling with, what was going through his mind while he was on the run for his life from Saul, while he was reigning as king. And that's what? That's the book of Psalms. And so tonight I want us to, to dive into one of the psalms that David wrote during this time of his life so that we can find out what was going through David's mind. Because this is an insane series of events that's taken place to him. It, it, it's enough to drive anyone crazy, to make us begin to question. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 142 together tonight to find out some of what David was thinking. And one of the reasons I love how God orchestrated the Psalms with the life of David is when we consider 
First and Second Samuel with the book of the Psalms together, all of a sudden the life of David takes on a depth and a color that we never saw before in the pages of Scripture. Take, for example, we're not going to be there tonight, but Psalm 52. Psalm 52, I referenced it earlier. This was a psalm written by David or sung by David after Doeg had gone and told Saul about the, the priest at Nob and Saul had gone and destroyed the priest at Nob. David writes this in Psalm 52.1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? See, when we read the psalms disconnected from the rest of the story, we're kind of sitting there going, well, well, who's the mighty man? It's kind of generic. It's kind of amorphous. It's just floating out there. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, you love evil more than good. Who is David talking about? He's talking about Doeg, the Edomite. And so when we begin to compare these things, when we begin to put these things together, the Psalms take on a much richer meaning for us, as well as 1 and 2 Samuel takes on a much richer meaning for us. And so again, tonight we're going to be in Psalm 142. Psalm 142, which David writes in a time when life is not going how he planned it to go. And I think Psalm 142 gives us a great layout of how we should respond when life takes a turn that we weren't expecting. When life goes away, we're not wanting it to go. When we find ourselves, so to speak, on the run, when we find ourselves in the valley, when we find ourselves suffering, when we find ourselves in times of trial and tribulation, See, Psalm 142 is a psalm for the the weary. It's a psalm for the disappointed. It's a psalm for the confused. It's a psalm for the frustrated. Psalm 142 is what we've titled this message tonight. It's a psalm for real life. And so if you're not already there, grab your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 142. I'm just going to read the text for us. It's only seven verses, and then we'll get into it. Psalm 142, a mascal of David, when he was in the cave... A prayer. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David begins Psalm 142, again, on the run for his life, in the wilderness of Ziph, hiding in the caves, and he says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before him. I tell my trouble before him when my spirit faints within me. Notice the actions of David here. He says, I I cry out to the Lord. It's a word in the Hebrew that means to call out for deliverance, to call out for help. In fact, it's used in Jonah chapter 1, verse 5, when Jonah's fleeing from the Lord and he's, he's on the boat with the, the sailors and the, the tempestuous seas roar and the storm comes up and it says that the sailors cried out to their gods. It's this cry of desperation. It's an utterance that there's, there's nowhere left to turn. And so all I have left to do is cry out for help, save me. 
He says, I cry out for help to the Lord. I plead for mercy to the Lord. It's to beg. It's to implore the Lord for compassion. It's used in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. Joseph's brothers saying, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he hears the word, begged us, and we did not listen. And so you see the imagery there. It's Joseph in the, in the pit pleading with his brothers, Brothers, don't do what you're about to do. Please don't do this. And David's saying he's doing the same thing with the Lord, pleading for mercy. Next he says, I pour out my complaint before him. I pour out my complaint before him. I exhaust my soul before the Lord. Earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15, Hannah says, My Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been, here it is, pouring out my soul before the Lord. It's a word rich with emotion, with sorrow, with angst. Just as, as Hannah was experiencing when she didn't have a child and she was begging the Lord for a child. He says, I, I pour out my complaint. I tell my trouble before him. That word trouble in the Hebrew is the opposite Hebrew word of the word for deliverance. The opposite of the word for security, for salvation. I tell my trouble before the Lord. And it says he does all of this as his spirit, he says, faints within him. It's that description of that internal void. That despair, that hopelessness. But notice David starts out all of this, and he says it twice in verse 1. There's this little phrase. He starts the psalm 1-1 one, one with it, and it, it appears again in that same verse. It's this. With my voice. With my voice. In fact, in the Hebrew text, it's put in the place of emphasis. The writer of Hebrews here, or the writer of the book here of the psalm, David, he could have said, hey, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. But David puts it at the very beginning of the Hebrew text and then he repeats it. He's bookending it saying, look, I'm literally calling out to the Lord. I am putting into words what's going on in my life. I am pleading with him. This isn't just an inner groaning. Yes, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, and, and we nod our heads in agreement with it because it's true that the Spirit groans with words that are too deep for us. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't groan with words that we have ourselves. And so David is using his voice. He's speaking the reality that he's, he's experiencing right now and he's bringing it before the Lord and he's crying for help. He's pleading for mercy. He's pouring out his soul. He's calling for, for deliverance. I feel though that sometimes we can let our doctrine carry our desperation. And here's what I mean by that. We know that God is our helper. We know that God is sovereign. We know that, yes, God hears our cries. And we know that the Spirit groans on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And so because we know all of this, we never actually get to the point where we ourselves are calling on the Lord for help. Where we're bringing our troubles before the Lord, our sufferings before the Lord, our trials before the Lord, and saying, Lord, this is where I am. Save me. Help me. Deliver me. 
And so we can learn a lesson from David here. I mean, if, if we put ourselves in David's shoes or the shoes of his mighty men who are with him, we can hear his cries echoing off the walls of the caves. We can feel his emotion. We can sense that not only did he believe these things about God to be true, but because he believed them, he acted and actually put his needs into words. And I wonder when's the last time that you actually raised your voice to call on the Lord for something that you need. For help, for provision, for wisdom, discernment, for patience, for understanding. That's our point number one tonight. You can write it down this way. In times of trouble, literally call on the Lord. I'm controlling that, aren't I? I'm looking at the back going, hey, what's, where's the point? It's up here. Sound guys, you guys have an, a thankless job, but you guys do a great job, so I'm, I'm appreciative for, for you. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, literally call on the Lord. Now, we throw that word literally around a lot. That was literally the longest commute I've ever experienced. That was literally the longest movie I've ever had to endure. That was literally the hardest conversation I've ever had. What do we mean by that? We're just stressing that it was hard. We're just stressing that it was long. We're, we're stressing that it was annoying, right? But literally means it's, it's, it's not meant to be used that way. It's meant to be used when, when we're actually meaning what we're saying. And that's what I'm driving at here is not just to, to throw the word out there the way we use it as a cliche. I'm saying, no, you guys literally call on the Lord the way that David did. See, it took David too long to get this, to, to this point. He should have done this earlier. And honestly, it, it probably takes us too long to get here as well. See, we battle the same temptations that David did. We know who God is, but like David last week, we think, we believe that we're still in control. We believe that we can still right the ship. We're on the Titanic with a bucket of water bailing out, wondering why everybody else is in the lifeboats. We believe we can fix things through lies and cover-ups. We believe we're fine on our own. But the reality is, we're not. We're not fine on our own. And, and let me illustrate it this way. We depend on God for, for literally everything. Do me a favor right now. Take a deep breath. Where'd that come from? Did you merit that breath that you just took? No. Did your lungs merit the breath that you just took? No. In fact, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ literally holds all things together. What does that mean? The reason that your lungs function the way they do is because Christ sustains them. The, we, the reason why there's enough oxygen in the air for our bodies to function is because Christ sustains our atmosphere. The reason why your bloodstream can absorb the oxygen that it needs to give you the, the ability to function the way that you need is because Christ sustains it. We depend on God for literally everything. And so what is it that makes us think when we get into a tight spot, when we're facing trials, when we're in times of need, that we can do it on our own? What makes us think that it's enough for us just to know that God can come to our aid without us ever asking him to do it? Just a, a couple chapters back from where we are, Psalm 139. 
Again, this is David writing this. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind me and before me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and even and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. That's the God that we serve, that we worship. And David puts it this this way, the same thought that Psalm 139 communicates so so immensely. He communicates back in our Psalm in 142.3 this way. He says in verse 3, you know my way. Psalm 139 and also what David's saying here, he's appealing to God's omniscience. That God knows everything. He knows you through and through. He knows exactly where you are at all times. And so why would we not do what David does here and call out to him? Cry out to him for deliverance. Let's keep reading though. David describes his circumstances for us in chapter one, in Psalm 142 verse 3. He says, in the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. At this point, David's feeling alone and abandoned, isolated. David's missing the companionship of Jonathan. When he says there in Psalm 142, he says, Look to the right and see. No one takes notice of me. He could have written it this way. There's none who truly knows me. No one knows me. And obviously he's thinking about Jonathan and the the intimate friendship that the two of them shared with one another and he's missing that. Even the people he had rescued from certain death had turned their back on him and betrayed him. He says, they've hidden a trap for me. Even in the wilderness, the wilderness peoples were ready to trade his life for a favorable gift from the king. And sure, he had his men with him, but let me remind you what type of men they were. 1 Samuel 22, 2. 1 Samuel 22, 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, I think that one's my favorite, gathered to David, and he became commander over them. So you've got people who are distressed, people who are in debt, and people who are bitter in soul as your companions. Yeah, David's companions aren't exactly the people that he needs to seek solace from at this point in time, are they? So what did David do? When he looked around and and there was no one who knew him, no one he could trust, but everyone was ready to lay a trap for him, everybody was ready to betray him, David sought solace in the Lord. Verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. 
you are my refuge. My refuge. David turned to the Lord for refuge, but what does it mean that God was his refuge? The prophet Isaiah uses this same word to describe God as one who provides shelter from a storm. If you've ever been in a bad storm, you know what that's like. Growing up in Texas, we had our fair share of bad storms. And I remember driving around in a car and always thinking I was safe in the car because my parents told me something about the tires being rubber and lightning can't get you inside a car. I don't know if that was true. I, just, I felt safe. But when I was moving out to Arizona from Missouri, we had to cut down through Oklahoma. And I'm not sure why Oklahoma exists other than maybe there's some, a few good people that, that have come out of there. And I'm, I'm willing to grant that. But, but overall, the rest of the state, I, I, I don't get it. So we're coming down through Oklahoma, and Oklahoma wanted to, to kill us. So it, it worked up these nasty storms. And so we had driven out of, out of Missouri, which has storms itself, and we come into Oklahoma, and all of a sudden the phone starts going crazy. And it's saying, tornado warning. Not watch, warning, which means they're touching down. Take shelter immediately. Okay, there's nothing in Oklahoma for large stretches. And that's where we were. We were on one of those large stretches of nothing. And my wife, I had just turned over the wheel to her because I was going to take a rest and a break from driving. And so that was great. And, and we're driving and she's going, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know because they tell you don't take shelter under overpasses in the middle of a tornado. And so I just said, keep driving and we'll pray. And so that's what we did. And eventually we got to a place where we felt like it was lightening up and, and we got off the road and stopped for lunch and we thank the Lord that he, he protected us. But, but at that point in time, we, we were wanting shelter from the storm. We wanted to be somewhere where we were going to be safe. Where nothing was going to be able to get to us. That's the idea of this word being a, a refuge that David's talking about. In Psalm 104.18, and we don't know who wrote that psalm, but the psalmist there describes the same word using the illustration of a rock badger of a rock badger. If you've ever gone to, to the Rocky Mountains, this is the closest I, I can draw an illustration for. The, those little chipmunks that, that are all in the, the cracks and crevices of the rocks out there, and they'll poke their heads out every once in a while, but then they dive back under the rocks. Well, you, you can't get to them under the rocks because those are massive boulders that they find the tiny cracks and crevices, and they get in there, and they're safe because they have a refuge. It's the same concept. David's saying, God, you right now are that to me. What gave David that confidence? To be able to say, you are my refuge. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What gave David that confidence? To trust God to be his refuge. And I think it's this, he knew God. He knew him to be a faithful God, a merciful God, a sovereign God, a loving God, a providing God, a caring God. See, God, David, when he's calling out, God help me, isn't just throwing that out into the stratosphere. He's crying out to a God who he knows will hear him and respond. And a God who he knows is able to respond. A God who he knows and believes will deliver him. And so he says to him, God, you are my refuge. It's point number two for us tonight. It's this. When suffering, remember God's character. 
when suffering, remember God's character. Did David know that Saul wasn't going to catch him? In other words, when David says to God, you are my refuge, is that limited to his physical deliverance and protection? I think David may have been somewhat confident that he was going to be preserved after Samuel's anointing of him, but at the same time, he is running for his life. He is fleeing. He is running. He is desperate. And so when David says, and remember, Psalm 142, we're reading a psalm, and and let's not divorce it from its context. This is David in 1 Samuel chapter 23 in, in the surrounding context there. This is during that time. During that time, David is saying, God, you are my refuge. See, I think David knew, regardless of the storms in his life, the circumstances that might arise in God, he would always be safe. I always, again, come back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar and they say, we don't don't need to answer you. Throw us in the fire. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire, and he will deliver us from you. In effect, they were telling Nebuchadnezzar, God is our refuge. He is our shelter. No matter what, we will always be safe in God. Jesus builds on this idea when he says, don't fear man. All man can do to you is kill you. What's his point there? From from the positive side of things, he's saying, if man kills you, you're still okay. Why? Because God is your refuge, and that refuge transcends this earth in all of your circumstances herein. And so David's saying, you are my refuge, because he knows who God is. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. I probably say that every week, but this one really is. 2 Timothy 1, 8-12. 2 Timothy 1, 8-12. This jumped out and smacked me in the face one day reading it in a way that it never had. I had read this over and over and over again. In fact, I did my thesis in seminary on 1 and 2 Timothy, and it was just recently that I came across this. Paul writes there, Therefore do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his what? Prisoner. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison. Does Paul know that he's going to be freed from prison? No. Is Paul on his way to an eventual execution at the hands of Nero? Yes, he is. Is Paul ready for that? Yes, Philippians 1, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So he says this, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But he says, Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Here it is. But I am not ashamed. Why? For I know what I believe. Is that what it says? No. Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Everything in me as the theologian, as the guy who likes the books and the textbooks, expects Paul to say, I know what I believe. I've got my doctrine down, but Paul's confidence while he's in prison on his deathbed, David's confidence while he's running for his life in Ziph, is not his theology as much as it is his theology which informs his confidence in the God behind it. 
So David could have said with Saul, I know whom I believe. And so God, you are my refuge. Saul could have, or Paul could have said with David, I know whom I believe. And so God, you are my refuge. And so here's what that means for us. If we're going to run to God as our refuge, we have to know him in his promises. I know whom I have believed. Do you know whom you have believed? Not the what, but the whom. Do you have this kind of a relationship with God? In the darkness of the valley, can you see the light of God's character? And take hope in that. I want to suggest a resource for you. If you haven't read it yet, don't have a copy of it, please go to our bookstore. We've got, I just verified today, we've got, I think, 17 copies as of today in the bookstore. They're $8.39. You can quote me on that. A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. If, if you need a little bit of fodder, a little bit of fuel to, to, to spark you in how you know God and how you think about God and in confidence in times of trial and suffering to be able to hold on to some amazing thoughts about God outside of of scripture which start with the scriptures but go pick up a copy of the knowledge of the holy it's not long it's not long it's about 120 pages Um, but it's amazing here's why here's a couple of quotes from it Tozer says this the mind looks backward in time until the dim past vanishes then turns and looks to the future Till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points, unaffected by either. So Tozer there is talking about God's timelessness. He exists outside of time. So as you're mourning your past, God is there. As you're unsure about the future, God is there. Here's another one. In this world where men forget us, change their attitude toward us as their private interests dictate, and revise their opinion of us for the slightest cause, is it not a source of wondrous strength to know that the God with whom we have to do changes not? And that's an anchor for the soul. That's a thought that's a refuge for us to run to when we're battling the opinions of others around us, when we're battling a world that seems to be changing every single day, to run to God's immutability, the fact that he does not change. And then I love this one, it's short. If you guys want these quotes, you can always go back on the live stream and and grab a, a snapshot of them or email me and I'll send you the presentation. I love this one. To God alone, nothing is necessary. To God alone, nothing is necessary. And it's, it's thoughts like that that can, that can be fodder for our souls when we're in the midst of a valley, when we're in the midst of, of trials and tribulations and sufferings. It's knowing God, knowing his character, remembering his character, which will allow us to have confidence that we can trust in him, that when we call on him, he's able and will respond to us. Well, because of his confidence in God as his refuge, David returns to his pleas in the last part of our text. He says in verse 6, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison. David's a man fully aware of his dependence on the Lord. 
deliver me from my persecutors, he says, for they are too strong for me. No longer is this the David that we saw who's lying and deceiving his way into his preconceived notions of safety. This is David at the end of himself. In fact, he even goes so far as to describe his situation as being in prison. God, I'm in prison. Charles Spurgeon says of this verse, Escaped prisoners are sure to speak well of those who give them liberty. Escaped prisoners are sure to speak well of those who give them liberty. And I'd like to say that this is always true, but I don't know that it is. See, how often do we really see and point to God's hand leading us out of the trial, out of the season of despair? Do we take time to reflect on our prayers and how God has answered them in order that we might give Him thanks and glorify Him in our deliverance? I'd say it's safe to assume we've all offered up our fair share of these prayers. God, help me get through this presentation. Help me figure out a way to pay this bill. Give me wisdom for this conversation. Remove this sickness. Let this scan come back clean. And and we should. That's crying out to God for help. We talked about that already. But I also wonder how often do we finish these requests the same way that David did as he ends this psalm in verse 7. Bring me out of prison that. It's a word of, of purpose expressing the reason why David is pleading for deliverance. Deliver me that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Rescue me, deliver me, save me, restore me. Why? That I may worship you in response. That's our final point tonight. It's this. When praying for deliverance, keep God's glory in view. When you're calling on the name of the Lord, when you're remembering his character, keep his glory in view as the end of it all. See, this is the key to the rest of the psalm. If this part's not here, this is little more than David just mongering pity for himself. But because he gets here, this is is the, the driving force. This is what unlocks all of it for us. Is David saying, God, do this so that I may give you thanks. He he doesn't say, hey, deliver me, restore me, save me, so that I can be the king you wanted me to be. Deliver me, save me, restore me, for the good of the people of Israel. Deliver me, save me, restore me, so that Saul, an evil and wicked man, does not get the victory here. I mean, those are all, I think, valid thoughts that David could have entertained but instead he says save me deliver me rescue me free me from this prison why so that I can give you thanks so that I can shout it from the rooftops that God has delivered me Spurgeon again soul emancipation soul emancipation is the noblest form of liberation and calls for the loudest praise He who is delivered from the dungeons of despair is sure to magnify the name of the Lord. Let me suggest a very tangible, practical way to do this. Journal your prayers. Journal your prayers. I'm not talking about dear diary. I'm talking about get a blank notebook 
or use your phone, your, your tablet, your computer, whatever they are, and bullet point out what your prayer requests are. Date them. And then every month, go back over the ones that you've written down and see how God has answered those prayers. And when you see an answer, glorify God. And not just to yourself, go to your coworkers and say, hey, can I share how God answered a prayer this week? Go to your family, say, let me show you how God answered prayer. Come to church and, and be beaming from ear to ear and say, I have to share with you how God answered prayer. I have to give him praise and glory for what he's done in my life right now. Go back over it every six months. Remind yourself. Go back over it every year and be faithful in this exercise and think about year after year after year. Think about the, the joy that you would have in, in sitting down over a decade and being able to go back over and say, look at all the ways, God, you have worked in my life. I hope in your small groups y'all are doing this, circling back around your prayer request and giving God glory for answered prayers, thanking him for answered prayers. But more than that, I hope we're training ourselves to see our entire lives, everything that happens to us as opportunities to display God's glory. See, this is a, a thing I used to come back to over and over and over again in student ministry because it was so poignant with teenagers, but it's poignant with us as well, and it's something that we need to be reminded of from time to time again ourselves, and that's this. This life is not about us. This life is not about comfort. We live in a country that has a bill of rights, and that's great, and we need to, to celebrate that and rejoice in that and thank God for that. However, we also need to be mindful that none of those are guaranteed biblically. In, in God's eyes, we have a right to be obedient to him, faithful to him, and to glorify him in every single circumstance that we find ourselves in. And so David running from his life from King Saul was a divinely appointed opportunity for him to glorify God. You losing your job is a divinely appointed opportunity for you to glorify God. You having surgery is a divinely appointed opportunity for you to glorify God. I know those are hard truths to hear and hard to hear from me because you're looking at me saying you're not in my shoes and you're right I'm not and I say these gently and with deference and respect for every single person in this room who is suffering right now but let me encourage you this is not discouraging but encouraging because it gives a point to your pain it gives a meaning for your suffering for your tears And so as you walk through that valley, are you praying for deliverance in order to see God's name glorified? To see him magnified? Are you keeping God's glory in view? Again, the Psalms are God's way of giving us a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the thoughts of David. And when we lay them on top of the story of David's life, they add that depth to his life. All of a sudden we read Psalm 142 and we're like, I, I know where David is right now. His life is on the line. I get it. I, I go back and I read Psalm 52. I, I know who he's talking about. That mighty man that he's using as a pejorative term there, the, 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 the man he's mocking, that's Doeg, the Edomite. And yes, he is a wicked and ruthless man. 
And specifically in Psalm 142, we see a glimpse into David's mindset while he's on the run from Saul when life is not going how he's expected it. And it does teach us some great lessons on how we should respond when life goes haywire. So let's literally raise our voices to call on the Lord. Let's make sure we know him, that we know his character and his promises and and cling to those. And let's plead for him to come to our defense to deliver us in order that we might give him thanks and shout of his glory to all who will listen to us. Let's pray together. Father God, a heavy text, a heavy psalm, and Lord, yet one that we cling to and we thank you that you are a God who hears us, a God that we can call out to and cry to, that you aren't a deistic God who set this world in motion and then stepped back to have nothing to do with it, but you are a God who is both nearer and yet a God who transcends everything. You hear our pleas for help. You hear our cries. You hear our pleading and our begging for you to do something, Lord. And yes, Romans 8, you even hear those pleas and those cries and those beggings that that we don't even know how to put into words. Lord, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you are a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God who you've said in the book of Hebrews, we can come before your throne to find grace and help and mercy in time of need, and and we can come boldly to do those things. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be quick to do that, and that you would respond. And yet, Lord, even as we walk through the valley, and and as sometimes the response is not right now, or not yet, or, or hold on, I pray that we would be able to see the purpose for our suffering right now, the, the reason behind it that ultimately everything in this life, whether we eat or drink or whether we suffer, we are to do it all for your glory. God, keep that at the forefront of our mind. Thank you for this evening, Lord. I pray that our small group time would be productive. In Christ's name we pray, amen.